0: Thank you, Michael. I'm delighted to see all of you again after a little bit over a year away. And I think there's been a great deal of water under the bridge since then in God's providence. And it is a privilege to be able to testify to his great faithfulness in all that we face in life. It's good to see all of you doing well. And this is actually my first visit since you've begun to enjoy the Mountain Reformed Baptist Church chairs, and uh, it's good to see that they are very comfortable. Glad you were able to acquire them. I wanted to redirect our attention after well over a year away from the Psalter to Psalm 17. For those of you who are here, beginning in November of 2015 and continuing through March of 2018, we looked at Psalms 1 through 16. Last summer we diverted our attention to some other passages, but I'd like to take up the Psalms again. One of the things that we've noted is that this great hymn book or collection of the praise songs of Israel is filled with petitions, but this 17th Psalm is actually the first one to be identified as a prayer per se. You see that in the heading, a prayer of David and therefore I believe it is set off as what we might term a model prayer in scripture among many others not the least of which of course is our Lord's prayer which we find in Matthew 6 and in Luke 11 but this is another prayer that we can consider uh, for our own way of praying and the content of our prayers and the expectation of them as we pray to our God. Now, I noted when we looked at psalm 16 that there are some similarities between psalm 16 and psalm 17 though we're just now getting to psalm 17 in fact many scholars believe that they were companion songs originally uh, mainly because of some uh, commonalities for example we see in psalm 16 1, and in psalm 17 8 that david mentioned the fellowship uh, rather the requests that he makes to god to be kept by him in times of trouble uh, in verse 7 of Psalm 16, and verse 3 of Psalm 17, we see David mention the fellowship that he had with God during the night. <clears throat> we know that David uh, had many sleepless nights throughout his life and reign as king. Uh, we have those as well, and David is appreciative of the way in which God has come to him by night, as is alluded to as well in verse 3 of uh, Psalm 17 as we'll see in a moment when I read it but I think the most important parallel is found in the respective final verses of these two psalms, Psalm 1611 and Psalm 1715 that David is working toward the end of finding satisfaction and comfort and joy in that of which we have already sung at length this morning in the worship service, the very presence of God I noted with regard to Psalm 16, 11, that the presence of God full in heaven is something that the believer has in the present. And in verse 15 of Psalm 17, this is beautiful language that is connected to the concept of resurrection where David speaks of awakening and finding satisfaction in the form of or the likeness of his God. And so, aware that David is once again working to that point, let's focus on these beautiful words of Israel's king from Psalm 17. Hear a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry, give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence let my vindication come, let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart, you have visited me by night, you have tested me and you will find Nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress with regard to the works of man. By the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God, Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior, of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. They close their hearts to pity with their mouths. They speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear. As a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure, they are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he, by his spirit, impress its truths deeply upon our souls. Let's again pray. Lord, thank you that you have revealed to us that which we must know to understand who you are and who we are. We ask that you would have your way with us and that you would sanctify to us the truth of your word. Help us to understand and not merely to hear, but to live by your truth. For we ask it in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen. I noted as I was reading rather widely commentary, sermons, articles on the 17th Psalm in preparation for this message that many writers and scholars have employed a technique that you've seen me use on occasion and that is to set a title over a message that is cross-testamental. That is to take... A passage from the opposite testament at which we're looking and to see how the two fit together. I think that as covenant theologians that's something that's very important to see how the testaments connect and how it is that there is an organic nature to God's revelation and it was interesting to discover that for example one commentator um, titled his chapter assessing Psalm 17 pray without ceasing now you remember those words from uh, first Thessalonians five seventeen, where the Apostle Paul calls for the saints at Thessalonica to develop a spirit of prayer. There's an ongoing sense of a commitment to laying one's cares and desires before God for things agreeable to his will. That's among the words he uses as his sign off in what we know to be that first letter to the church at Thessalonica. And that's very appropriate. Uh, another writer titled uh, the chapter he designated to Psalm 17 using words from James 5, 16, The Prayer of a Righteous Man. Now that too is appropriate because James tells us there that the prayers of a righteous man avail much. Uh, That is, there is much power in their working as they are offered because God is pleased to hear and to grant the wants of his people as they honor him as they come to him seeking to rid themselves of all of their iniquities and to be cleansed by his righteousness and there's a context there you know a few verses back up the page James has called for those who are sick to summon the elders to lay hands on them and and to pray for them but lest The readers of that epistle think that those are confinements or parameters limiting prayer. James talks about how much the prayer of the righteous avails a great deal in order that they will be reminded, the saints will, throughout the ages as they read those words that there are no limits, but in fact they should bring all of their cares to the Lord. There should be a prevalence and a depth to prayer concerning all things. And you see, these things are particularly appropriate because what David is doing in Psalm 17 is continuing to push his case on the Lord. This prayer, if it is nothing else, is unrelenting, and so that's why I've decided to put my oars in the waters of cross-testamental titles and utilize the words of our Lord from another familiar passage to you in Luke 18. You remember the story of the persistent widow, the one who was coming to a not-so-righteous judge, and she was continuing to press her case upon him, and he finally relented. In Luke 18, we read in verse 4, For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. Will not God give justice to His elect who cry to Him day and night? Will He delay long over them? I tell you, He will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? And I want you to see that connection to the previous words of the Savior when at the beginning of that passage He has told them that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And he gives them this account of this needy widow continuing to come back and to press and to push and to bother and to relentlessly lay claim to this judge who isn't even righteous, to keep asking, to keep pushing. My mentor Jason Shelton used to say, push, pray until something happens. And, And she does so, and that question at the end serves as a kind of an inclusio. I believe there's a connection between finding faith on the earth and praying always and not losing heart. Jesus says up front, don't lose heart. Always pray and do not grow weary. That's what that really means. To show us that when he comes, he expects us to find those who have not lost hope, but who in fact have kept heart and who possess the very tenets of saving faith. And what is its object ultimately? It is the Lord Himself. So I think this appropriately frames Psalm 17, that we ought, ought, ought always to pray with the intent of not losing heart, because not losing heart consists ultimately of setting our sights, looking up past all of our needs, and finding satisfaction in the one whom alone can give life, and whom alone is glorious and worthy of all praise, and our all in all. As I study the Psalms, my mind keeps wandering back to one of my favorite passages, and that's in Psalm 73, verses 25 and 26. You've, you've heard me state it before in our analyses of the Psalms, but it bears repeating. The psalmist. Asaph asked, Whom have I in heaven but thee, and beside thee, Lord, I desire nothing upon the earth. For my heart and my flesh may fail, but thou art the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You see, as we come to the Psalms, we find that it is in recognizing that He is all we have there that we begin to understand that He is all we need here this is Psalm 17's greatest feature. Pressing God with the understanding that He alone is the one who satisfies the soul. This prayer in Psalm 17 has three petitions. And interestingly enough, they each come with developments that bolster the case. In uh, verse 1 and 2, we have the first petition. Then in verses 3 through 5, we have David's statement of his actions to support that petition. In verses 6 through 9, we have the second petition. And then in verses 10 through 12, we have David's commentary on his enemies to support that petition. And then finally, the third petition is found in verse 13. And in verses 14 and 15, we have David's profession of his hope to bolster that petition. One of the reasons we refer to our requests as petitions is that petitions, as you know, come with explanations. If someone stops you outside bonds and wants you to sign a petition, what do you do? You don't dare sign it until there is a development of what is desired behind the request, trying to get a candidate on the ballot, trying to make uh, some issue, an initiative and... uh, referendum or a proposition on the ballot what have you there has to be an explanation and a good faithful prayer does this inextricably linked to the covenant bonds that God has established with his people it makes a case and that's what David is doing here now first I have three points and the first is that believers ought always to pray in light of assessed character in light of assessed character. Here, as with the other Psalms, when David is grappling with the emotions of fear or illness at ease because someone or something is coming against him, some force, some individuals, his enemies politically, perhaps those within the kingdom who cause him sleepless nights, he inevitably is crying out to God for assistance when there is this fright over the possibility of his destruction by those who hate him or any who would come against him and as he comes to the lord he wants to make it clear though the lord already knows this that as he speaks to him he is not guilty of the things of which he is charged we deduce this from the language that he uses for example in verse one when he says here a just cause obviously then what's on david's mind is the charge of an unjust cause Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. Well, apparently, he felt if he had to say that, that there were those who were accusing him of lying or dishonesty. From your presence. Again, there's the idea of God's being with him in full from your presence, that is, from all that you are, get me off the hook, vindicate me, may I be cleared in your eyes, may you look upon me, and with regard to the charges that are laid out before me, may I be found not guilty. And then, as he supports this in verses 3 through 5, we begin to see language that frankly begins to trouble a lot of people, particularly those who are of a more cheap grace or easy believism orientation. Verses 3 through 5 are packed with an assessment of his own character. He begins to lay out the case You have tried my heart, you have visited me by night, you have tested me, and you will find nothing. You'll recognize this language from much later on in the 139th Psalm. David, there in verses 23 and 24, asks to be searched by God, to be tried to have his thoughts known, and if there be any grievous way in him, to be led in the way everlasting. And here we have uh, before-the-fact instance of that, long before requesting that, apparently David had experienced such an assessment. God had in fact come to him, had tried him, and he is confident by the grace of God that were God to assess him in the moment of the uttering of these words, He would find nothing. I remember when I was in college, my father's younger half-brother died of cancer at the age of 66. He had been converted in his mid-twenties. I was only 19 when he died and unfortunately was never able to appreciate his godliness. But the minister at his memorial had visited him days before his death and asked how he was and my uncle apparently had said to him for his testimony i can't think of a thing between me and the lord he was ready to go oh that we should all have such contentment david saying to god you won't find anything now I'm not like those other men. And we've noted before that man is mankind. In verse 4 he's speaking of those who would come against him, his enemies, his foes. They have violent ways. He's not that way. His steps have held. He has not removed himself from the path of righteousness. His feet have not been removed. Now as I said, heartburn develops in some who read this. They like to shy away from it. But we need to understand that David here is not claiming guiltlessness. He's confessing devotion. He's not professing perfection. He's citing loyalty. To God's glory, he wants there to be an understanding before God and before men that His name is clear with regard to the false charges that are before Him. Help me, God, these things aren't true. It's just a sobering awareness that he has, a healthy knowledge of the reality of Psalm 66:18, where another psalmist has written, as you well know, "If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have heard." Now this motif is found all over the place in Scripture, in, in Proverbs, for example, Proverbs 21:13 he who closes his ear to the poor will himself call out and not be heard. Proverbs 28, 9. If one turns away from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. In the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 15, the Lord makes clear that his people's refusal to help the weak, regardless of how lavish their offerings may be, they will make many prayers, he says, and he will not. We come into the New Testament, and as is often the case, the New Testament presents what the Old Testament has stated in the negative and the positive. In John 9, for example, you remember the blind man who has been healed there by Jesus, and the religious zealots have gathered round and they're giving him a difficult time. And he says to them, We know that God does not listen to sinners, John 9 31. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will God listens to him. He hears those who come before him with pure hands and a clean heart. And those who have things that would obstruct the view of God unto the righteousness that he is pleased to work in his own. There is an obstruction to the ear of God. Now before we leave verses 1 through 5 I want you to see two things that will be of assistance to those who would like to charge David with leaning upon some spiritual merit of his own. Notice at the end of verse 5 my feet have not slipped if you go to Psalm 121 I won't take the time to turn there now but in that great second of the songs of ascent the keeper of Israel is presented as the one who does not slumber nor sleep and Before that, he says what? He will not allow your foot to be moved. He will not allow your foot to slip. It's the same language that we we find here. The psalmist in Psalm 21 makes it clear that it is God who is doing the keeping. But I would suggest to you that the axis upon which the wheel of Psalm 17, 1 through 5, really turns is in the midst of verse 4. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips I have avoided the ways of the violent, lest you think I'm patting myself on the back, I come to you in this state, Lord, as the one who has lived and adhered by those things that you have spoken to me, your revelation, your covenant promises that you have proven to be faithful to keep. He would dare not come and claim that he is not guilty of these things, but by the word of his God's lips, by what you have spoken, I come to you and I request vindication. David is longing for this and working toward the hope ultimately of seeing his God. For by God's power, David... Is in a place of purity. Doesn't this remind you of the sixth beatitude in Matthew five eight? Blessed are the pure in heart. For what they shall see. God. In Psalm seventeen one through five, with its aim at Psalm seventeen fifteen. I believe shows us the substance of what New Testament scholar Dr. William Hendrickson was driving at when he said this of that beatitude. The blessings of this beatitude is not pronounced without qualification upon all who are sincere, but rather upon those who, in the worship of the true God in accordance with the truth revealed in His Word, strive without hypocrisy to please and glorify God. These are alone the pure in heart. It is not surprising to read that the pure in heart will see God for this is the essence of their blessedness. Resemblance is the indispensable prerequisite of personal fellowship and understanding. To know God, one must be like Him. So we assess our character and we assess His and we dare not come before our God without a pure heart. Now, secondly, we ought always to pray in light of an all-encompassing concern. An all-encompassing concern. There are different needs that we have. David, I think, is pressing the panic button. He's in crisis mode. Michael prayed earlier for our brothers and sisters around the world who are in crisis mode. There is a sense in which you and I cannot and probably will never in our lifetimes identify with really being in an existential jam where you think you are threatened to the degree that David has been. But I think what he's going to work toward between verses 6 and 12 are a reminder of something that is true and something that Paul, in his comparison with who God's people are versus who they were in the introductory verses of Ephesians chapter 2, He says in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, the prince of the power of the air, the ancient enemy of God's people, big or small, whatever need you or I are bringing to God at His throne of grace, the discrepancy... The fact that there's a need, the fact that something that we must possess for living we do not possess is the result of sin in the world, which is precisely the condition which our foe from the garden, the devil, Satan himself, continues to use against us. We need to understand that prayer is our weapon to have our God break such strongholds that would keep us down. Martin Luther, in his grand hymn of the Reformation, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. If you assess that hymn, you'll know it's about 40% about Satan. And it's considered one of the greatest hymns ever. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed His truth to triumph through us. But still our ancient foe Doth seek to work us woe; his craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate, on earth is not his equal. And that is the all-encompassing concern. We should not trifle with he who would work woe unto us, but we should function in a cognizance that his power is greater than ours and we must go to the one who is greater than he, the one who abides and lives and functions within us and to ask for his help. This is ultimately the concern in this section of the second petition and its support expressions, verses 6 through 12, that David is driving at. I call upon you, verse 6, For you will answer me, O God, incline your ear to me, hear my words. These almost seem like uh, paradoxical uh, phrases. He seems so confident. But to show you that it is precisely confidence and not cockiness, he calls in his surety upon the Lord's hearing on the Lord Lord himself again to incline, stoop down to me, bend to me, and hear what I am saying. Uh, Verse 7 is beautiful. This is probably the most complex of the Hebrew of Psalm 17. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior, of those who seek refuge from their adversaries and do so at your right hand. Uh, That word we translate, wondrously show, there. that's a verb form that we find in other places in the Old Testament that brings with it the idea of God working powerfully to make a distinction, to to cause conditions to be drastically different for his people than he is causing them to be for the enemies of his people. For example, in Exodus 8, verse 22, in the fourth plague, you'll find that verb there where there is the expression of God's taking the flies and removing them and protecting Israel in her territory of Goshen and causing the flies to be only upon the Egyptians. Uh, We we find it again uh, in Exodus at a later place, from chapter 8 and chapter 15, the great song of the sea that celebrates the Exodus. And in verses 10 through 13, you find language again that is, is very strong, it's very powerful, it's drastic. You blew, Moses says, with your wind. The sea covered them. That is Pharaoh and his horsemen. Uh, They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is a God like you? There's Micah language from Micah 7.18. Lord among the gods. Who is like you? Majestic in holiness. Awesome in glorious deeds. Doing wonders. You stretched out your hand and the earth swallowed them. And then here's... That same verb form, verse thirteen. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. That is all of that mighty work that you have done is your leading in your steadfast love. And so when David cries out to God in Psalm seventeen seven to wondrously show your steadfast love, it's the same love that he wants to see demonstrated. What he's saying there is distinguish in a dramatic way circumstances for your servant. Even as you delivered your people years ago from Egypt by parting the Red Sea, and even as you protected your people from that dastardly Pharaoh and all of the plagues, come in my heartache and in my affection for you and in my purity before you and do that for me. Then in verses 8 and 9, we find similar language as well. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Now, this is taken virtually verbatim from Deuteronomy 32, verses 10 and 11. That another of the great Mosaic songs, when he's reflecting upon God's goodness to the Israelites in their wilderness wanderings. In verse 10 of Deuteronomy Thirty-two. He says, He found him that is Israel at large in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him and cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. So here's this heart's cry for such a drastic work of such power and yet at the same time he's asking God as he would do all of that to see him as the apple of his eye which historically has been understood to be the pupil. Now, we know how sensitive our eyes are. Um, I don't even like to put drops in my eyes. To be honest with you, I think I'd rather go to the dentist than the ophthalmologist. I mean, I can't stand those eye instruments. They drive me nuts. That's because the, the eye is tender. And that's an affectionate term. Perhaps some of you speak of your beloved as the apple of your eye. Do these wondrous, distinct things for me, Yahweh, and all the while... Deal with me as though I am the touchiest, most tender, most vulnerable, most prized and precious possession of yours. Do you pray like that? We sung of it moments ago, the latter half of verse 8, verse 8b. Hide me in the shadow of His wings. How often grief has not He brought thee relief. Joachim Neander said in the 1600s, spreading his wings to me. That's Deuteronomy 32.11. That he fluttered over his young, spread out his wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions or the outer part of the wings with their flight feathers to protect. He has a confidence that God protects his own and he sees himself as very precious to this powerful one I wonder do we and then in the support in verses 10 through 11 of this second petition he moves on to draw a contrast between his enemies and himself you'll notice in verses 10 and 11 how he uses the plural plural in subject in verse 10, and then both the subject and the objects of action in verse 11 are plural. Then in verse 12, he slips back into the singular. They close their hearts to pity. That is, they're not merciful like you, O God. My enemies, with their mouths, they speak arrogantly. We've seen this previously in the Psalter, have we not? Uh, They have now surrounded our steps, that is, me and mine are being encroached upon, and their eyes are down. That means they are nefarious. They are about things that are not good. Now, that's the enemies of God, verse 10. They, again, the enemies of God, have surrounded our steps, plural object, that's David and those who assist him, those who fight with him. Those who are with Him in any circumstance upon the earth as He rules as the King, as He grapples with His sin and theirs, they set their eyes to cast us to the ground to kill us. I don't think it's going too far to say that within the us would be included the Lord Himself, that those who hate God's people hate Him. This is why in the Shorter Catechism when we read the question about how it is that Jesus fulfills His kingly office, that in the last segment it says that he subdues and conquers all of his and our enemies. David's enemies are God's enemies. But all that having been said, look where he lands in verse 12. He, back to the singular, he is like a lion eager to tear as a young lion lurking in ambush. I suggest to you that by virtue of the language as well as the singularity, this is an all-encompassing expression of the fact That behind all that would oppose the soul, there is one who has more hatred than any who would love to work woe for me. Notice how that language is very similar to that of Peter and perhaps that most familiar of passages dealing with the devil. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, verse 8, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish. You see there how Peter, uh, much like I would argue David has here, is an awareness of the power of the enemy, the ultimate enemy of his soul, while still working as Peter does toward the hope of being finally restored and confirmed and strengthened and established, which is precisely that myriad of benefits that accrue to the saint when they see the Lord. Now, we often take the word devil prowls as him being aggressive, but it's interesting that in Psalm 17, verse 12, the lion who is eager to tear there as a young lion lurks, lurking in ambush. Prowl, that word in the Greek, actually means to work stealthily. There's an adverb you don't hear very often, stealthily. Remember the stealth bombers, how quiet they were? Satan is actually very quiet, very sneaky, in ways that we can't fathom. Oh, the results of those succumbing to the temptation he brings bring all manner of abrupt and hideous things before our eyes that break our hearts. We see the damage, but we really don't see him. We don't know where he is, slippery, moving in and out, and cutting and conniving and deceiving have to be aware of this and David is praying because he knows that stealth dimensions of the one who would harm him and those who threaten him here in context who are to borrow Jesus's words from John 8:44 of their father the devil so when you come with a large petition when you come with a small one remember that you are coming To be God's delivered child from the bondage that all of the effects of sin in the fall world the enemy lives and works to perpetrate upon you so that your faith might fail, you see, precisely so that you would pray and lose heart. There is an organization known as International Justice Mission. Some of you may be familiar with it. It was started in 1977. It's a non-government organization comprised of believers who uh, combat sex trafficking in the world. And in the last 22 years, they have been used of God and his mercy to deliver something on the order of 50,000 people worldwide from the throes of human trafficking, which is one of the greatest ills of humanity in the world today. There are more people enslaved on this terrestrial ball now than at any point in in history. And a friend of mine who knows someone who works at their headquarters in Washington DC says that these people more than any other missions organization he's ever known spend more time in prayer at the beginning of the day than any other agency or parachurch organization he's ever known. They spend from an hour to an hour and a half praying every morning before they go to work because they understand that what they are doing is taking them into the jaws of darkness. And the fact of the matter is, dear friends, that the little things in life that trouble you and trouble me and keep us awake at night are no less critical in their locale of instrumentation of the one who would sift us like wheat. Bear this all-encompassing concern as you pray. But then finally, in the final three verses, we come to the idea that we ought always to pray in light of what I'm calling an accurate compass. You ever stop and think about what the true north of prayer ought to be? David gives it to us here. He again engages in comparison between himself and his enemies. We've seen the criticality of his condition, and he bursts forth with that final petition in verse 13. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him. Take on my enemy, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. You must smite this one and those who are his operatives. from men by your hand O Lord from men of the world whose portion is in this life he paints a portrait of them as looking to satisfy themselves in material things you fill their womb that as you literally impregnate their existence with all kinds of goods then he moves to the matter of their children their offspring and their inheritance they will leave to said offspring and it it's interesting to note that David is by no means devoid of these things. He's wealthy. He has children. Uh, he has uh, heirs to give his things to. He has treasures of his own. But he presents them as stuck, focused upon the wrong things. Their attention is not directed where it should be, but the believers is always directed at God. The true north of our foci and particularly and especially in prayer are Him. You know, if you have a compass and the compass is not calibrated correctly and true north is off, it is of no good to you. And how beautiful it is what David says in the final verse, as for me, the same language we find in Joshua 24, 15, as for me and my house, we will serve Yahweh. As for me, I know the course those who are after me take, but as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. That is, one day he will stand faultless before his throne and see the face of the one who comes through his lineage, the greater David. Uh, when I awake, when I, to borrow R.C. Sproul's words, when I wake up in heaven, I'm going to have satisfaction in all that God is, I will see his form. I will look upon his likeness. It's as if David is, is asking God in this moment to have a mosaic experience. Do you remember, I was here about four years ago, and I preached a message from Numbers chapter 12. And in Numbers chapter 12, in that relatively brief chapter you'll remember there that there's kind of a a family affair. There's some sibling rivalry going on. Miriam and Aaron, the priestly figure, have come to their younger brother Moses, and they're giving him grief about the fact that they think that they have been instruments of the Lord as much as he has. Uh, Why is he to be set off? And the Lord comes down, and he comes down drastically, and he has to settle this dispute. In verse... 5 of Numbers 12, the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. And he said, hear my words, if there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Verse 9 says, The anger of the Lord was kindled against them and he departed. And if the Lord would be angry at the siblings of his mediatorial figure, can you imagine how the anger of the Lord would be kindled against those who were outside the camp and opposed Israel's king? Not so with my servant Moses. We know Moses made a lot of mistakes. We know he didn't enter into the promised land. But here's God coming down and saying, Not so with my servant Moses. He's defending this one. He's showing something of the purity, as it were, of Moses by God's power. And that's Davidic in Psalm 17. And it's as if there's a parallel here. It's as if He's wanting to have that experience he knew Moses had in the flesh where Moses spoke with him mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles. We know that Exodus 33.11 says he saw him face to face, but we know a few verses later that it's literally not looking on him barefaced, as it were, as one commentator says, but that he saw that likeness of God that he could stand to see and in that moment for Moses that was the fullness of God. And David longs to have this same kind of experience secure in the knowledge that one day what Moses could not see in full he will gaze upon and he will have no more cries from his heart. There will be no more departures from holiness there will be satisfaction and fulfillment of soul as he looks upon the face of his God. Fanny Crosby was blinded at the age of seven and lived well into her 90's which means that there were 80 plus years of service to Christ and leaving us some of the most beautiful hymns that have ever been written. Have you ever noticed how this blind woman's hymns are replete with visual imagery? Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Perfect submission, perfect delight. Visions of rapture now burst on my sight that she doesn't have watching, waiting, looking above, filled with His Spirit, lost in His love. Anticipation. The next thing that she would see would be the face of her Savior. That all those decades, there was a vision that was cast in her believing heart that kept her as she petitioned her God, as she came back to Him, and as she served Him. Francis Ridley Havergill, the British hymnist of the 19th century, was a pen pal of Fanny Crosby. And she once wrote an ode to her in which she said of Crosby, sweet, blind singer over the sea, tuneful and jubilant. How can it be that the songs of gladness that float so far as if they fell from moon or star are the words of one who will never see the visible songs of flower and tree, but oh, her heart can see. Her heart can see. And its sight is strong and swift and free because it sees the Lord in everything. Do we pray that way? I leave you with this. Thomas Brooks, one of my favorite Puritans from the 17th century, in the second volume of his writings, deals at length in one section with what he calls the topic of soul satisfaction. He writes, A sight of God will satisfy a glorious soul More than all worldly contentments and enjoyments. Yea, one sight of God will satisfy a saint more than all the glory of heaven will do. God is the glory of heaven. Heaven alone is not sufficient to content a gracious soul. But go, God alone is sufficient to content and satisfy a gracious soul. God only is that satisfying good that is able to fill and quiet and content and satisfy an immortal soul. Certainly, if there be enough in God to satisfy the spirits of just men made perfect, whose capacities are far greater than ours, and if there be enough in God to satisfy angels, whose capacities are far above theirs, if there be enough in God to satisfy Jesus Christ... His capacity is unconceivable and unexpressible, yea, if there be enough in God to satisfy Himself, then certainly there must needs be in God enough to satisfy the souls of His people. If all fullness and all goodness and in infiniteness will satisfy the soul, then God will. If There is nothing beyond God as there most certainly is not. Nothing beyond Him imaginable, nor nothing beyond God desirable, nor nothing beyond God delectable. Therefore, the soul that enjoys Him cannot but be satisfied with Him. God is a portion beyond all imagination, all expectation, all apprehension, and all comparison. And therefore, He that hath Him cannot but sit down and say, I have enough. Will you join me this day in taking the 17th Psalm and trusting the God who meets you there, seeking to walk before Him to be blameless by His grace, consistently coming, never relenting, pressing your case, asking and asking and asking knowing that one day as He reveals Himself to you, there will be no more desires of the soul than all that can be found in Him. Won't you take this psalm with me this day and sit down and declare, I have enough. Pray with me, please. God, as we come in our weakness and in our incalculable and unfathomable deficiencies. We ask that You would meet our every need and give us the ability to say with David, as for me, I will take satisfaction in You. Help us to know, Lord, that because You're all we have then, You're all we need now. And have Your way with us And keep us ever joyful as we come to you, never losing heart, but always by your sustaining power, finding fellowship with you, because we are full of saving faith. Amen.